0: I'm Durham and welcome to Patent Pod. We know there's a significant impact on student outcomes when families are involved with the educational process. The question arises as to what does that look like? Do we as educators need to account for any factors to form meaningful connections with students and families? Joining Patent Pod today is educational consultant, Tara Kelly, to help us think through family involvement and engagement. Thanks, Tara, so much for being on PatentPod. We're excited to have this conversation with you today. Talk to us a little bit. And we hear these terms and they're kind of used interchangeably, and I'm not sure if they are. So help us out here. When we say family involvement and family engagement, are there differences? Are they the same? Are they synonymous? Help me out in kind of understanding those two terms.
1: That's an excellent question, Dawn. This actually does come up in quite a few of our discussions around working with families. So the answer is that family involvement versus family engagement actually has to do with the perspective on how we're working with families. So when we talk about family involvement, we generally acknowledge that that's something that's happening to families. Um, For example, um, it could be something where a school might be planning an activity such as a back-to-school night or a literacy event, something where a school is basically driving the outcome of the event, and then families might be invited to participate, but families really aren't being involved as true partners in that type of involvement. they're being invited to participate, they may attend, they may not attend, but ultimately there isn't really a sense of true um, collaboration and true co-creation of having uh, school events and really determining what the outcomes should be uh, for the activities of the school community. In contrast, we have family engagement, and in family engagement, that's where we start to emerge into true partnership. That's really doing with families where schools become partners with their families, and everybody is on an equal footing. Families are recognized as the experts on their children and also as the experts on their communities. Um, They are able to help uh, the schools determine what should be happening in terms of supporting families and really pinpointing the activities and supports that are needed to be able to achieve meaningful uh, partnerships and better outcomes for students and families within the school communities. So, really, we want to look more toward family engagement as opposed mm-hmm. to family involvement.
0: So, when we think about this, really, family involvement is happening to the families, and the school is really the driver. Whereas family engagement is happening with the families and the families and the caregivers are really the driver. And I think that's a really important piece to kind of distinguish between involvement versus engagement. And our goal, if I understood you correctly, was that we want family engagement. We want this collaboration. We want this partnership. And and if I'm correct, if I'm capturing this wrong, please do tell me. But I think that's really what we're going for, right, is more of that engagement versus that involvement piece.
1: Absolutely, Dawn. We really want to err on the side of family engagement. We want to be doing with our families, with our caregivers, really, you know, engendering true partnership with our families, as opposed to family involvement, which is almost like a first step to having families attend something or participate on some level, but it's really not as meaningful. It's not that true collaboration. And as you said, family involvement is really more doing to families. It's really not doing with families in the sense that family engagement is.
0: I think that's such a great conversation to be having so thank you for just kind of laying that that good solid foundation and allowing us to understand the difference between involvement and engagement. Now I I just want to kind of go down a little bit of a path here when we're thinking about families and caregivers from more of a linguistically and culturally diverse backgrounds, or even traditionally underrepresented populations of students. um, Are there maybe different considerations or additional considerations that we need to keep in mind when we're working with those families and caregivers.
1: So again, that's an absolutely outstanding question, because I do think that it's something that historically we have not always um, done our due diligence as practitioners who work directly with families in really thinking around how our own perspectives and lived experiences contribute to how we work with our families and our students. I think it's incredibly important for us to remember that in the United States, historically, our educational system was designed to serve one type of student in one type of family. Um, Traditionally, it was families from a mostly white, middle-class, suburban background that had two-parent households where the language of the home was English. And I think today we recognize that that was historically what our system was designed for. However, um, we know that within the last you know, 40, 30 years in education, the proportion of students and families that we're serving who come from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds, from backgrounds that are culturally and linguistically diverse, is increasing rapidly, and so as practitioners, we all need to be very mindful in education that our experiences may not be the experiences of our students and families, so what do we do about that? Um, We need to come from a place of humility and be very open to learning and have um, really have Channels channeled curiosity, as we like to call it, about our students' backgrounds, about their experiences, about the needs of their families and where they're at. And we need to be very open to meeting our families where they're at and come from a place of wanting to have that partnership that we were talking about earlier and coming with no judgments and no preconceived notions and um, definitely not from a deficit mindset, which is something that sometimes we get a little caught up in an education. Um, We need to come from a place of strength and that all of our families have strengths that they bring when they come to a partnership with their schools and with their communities. And that we need to figure out where do we, where are we able to best support our families um, in meeting them where they're at and finding out what those strengths are, and then also what are their areas of need and how can we be supporting them in that? Um, So it really does have to be that that dialogue and that collaboration, and we need to be really mindful that things are not one size fits all, and we can't assume that we know what is best and say, okay, well, this is what we have to give, or this is what we're going to provide. Um, We need to come from a place, like we were talking about with family engagement earlier, where families are driving the outcomes, we need to have that partnership and that open line of communication to figure out what is it that our families need? What is it that our school communities need? Because it really is highly individualized based on the backgrounds and
0: experiences of our parents. Oh, Tara, you said so many things that I I wanna highlight a couple of pieces. You talked about humility. You talked about being open to learning. You talked about curiosity, right? Fostering curiosity in our students and their lived experiences, no judgment. coming from a place of this isn't a judgment area um, as well as avoiding that deficit mindset which admittedly can be challenging because we might have been kind of fostered in that that world for so long so really thinking about all these factors and components that will aid in this partnership and this engagement with families and caregivers now i just want to kind of pull this out just a little bit more when we talk about differing um, lived experiences of our families our caregivers our students how would that affect affect me as a as a practitioner how do i adjust or account or even learn how do i how do i have an understanding of these varying lived experiences because there are so many different aspects to consider
1: it really is an important consideration, Dawn, and I would say it starts with authenticity. Um, you know, we have to be open to who we are, and we can't fake, you know, we can't fake who we are. Um, we each come from our own background and our own experience. and. Um, I would often say as somebody who spent many, many years in early intervention and family service that um, I can't change who I am. You know, I am um, a white woman from a predominantly middle-class suburban background. Um, The families that I have served by and large over many, many years of service have not looked like me. They do not have the same lived experiences and backgrounds as I do. So as an educator, I need to be very mindful of the fact that I am coming from a place where I need to be open and be authentic about who I am and you know what what my experience has been, but that my experience is not their experience and that it is my job to make myself more knowledgeable about what my family's are experiencing, what their needs are, and then how can I best support? How can I best be situated to provide connection to resources, be providing Um, connection to other families, be providing connection to a school experience and a school community that's going to best serve my families and their children. So that's something that um, I've had to be very mindful of throughout my career. And I did not start on day one with that knowledge. That's something that basically had to be developed over many years and many conversations with colleagues and a lot of learning.
0: You know, Tara, I appreciate that you said that. It didn't start on day one for you. And I, I think we do need to give ourselves a little bit of grace and saying this is a process. We are learning as professionals. We are learning as practitioners. Um, and you know, that really notion of I am who I am. I have to be real and authentic about that. And I also have to realize that my experiences may not be the experiences of my students and of my families and of um, the community of which I'm serving even perhaps. And to really, I, I really appreciate that you had said it's it's our responsibility to be aware and knowledgeable and educate ourselves about those lived experiences so that we can form and work with those families in a much more meaningful way Um, and i think to really move students forward in their academic behavioral social emotional components of of their of their life to really form those meaningful bonds and and being true to myself and to them as well so i appreciate that you had said that now This kind of leads in the same conversation around the language we use, what is it about the language we use with our families are there things to be mindful of. Are there things we want to avoid are there um, conversations in which or language uses in which we need to be prepared for or uh, you know kind of reflective on can you just talk us through the language we use. Absolutely. That's one of the
1: things that I think, especially lately, we've been having more and more conversations about being reflective practitioners and being really aware of the fact that we historically in education have used descriptors or labels for entire groups of people. And many times the groups to whom those descriptors or labels are applied have never been able to give input into how they feel. Does that descriptor or label describe them? Do they identify with that? Does that capture their identity? Um, and many times the answer is no. Um, so what do we do about that? And I think we start, again, from a place of dialogue and really asking the people that we are charged with serving and the people that will become our partners, how do they want to be identified? How do they feel about themselves? You know, how, what terminology do they want to be used? Um, You know, a simple example that comes up frequently for those of us who work in special education. um, And, you know, I have been guilty of doing this at times in my career. I know many others have as well. And again, it's, you know, a situation like Dr. Maya Angelou used to say, when you know better, you do better, right? And we sometimes will refer to parents at a meeting as mom or dad. Well, they they may not want to be referred to as mom or dad. They may say, or I I often will say, you know, my name is Tara when I'm at my son's IEP meeting. And I will tell people, you're welcome to call me Tara. Um, You know, parents may introduce themselves in a specific way family members may introduce themselves in a specific way. And I think it's respectful that we take them at their word and essentially call them how they wish to be called rather than mom or dad. Or um, I've had families that they wish their child to be called by their child's name and not, you know, a, um, an endearment like kiddo or, you know, something along those lines. Um, and then we take that a step further to, you know, more broad identification. So for example, you know, in the United States. Um, In more recent years, we've often referred to populations of people as African-American. Well, some families don't wish to be called African-American. They may identify as black. And if that is their identification and that is the family I'm working with, I'm honoring their identification because that's what they've shared with me. And they're trusting me as an educator by sharing that part of themselves with me. So I need to be mindful and respectful of that. The same thing for our students who are indigenous. In the United States, we tend to call students Native American, but the student may not want to identify that way. They may identify with their tribal affiliation, like Lenape or Cherokee or whatever their tribal affiliation may be. So we need to be mindful of that. For our families who have disabilities, my background is as a teacher of the deaf, hard of hearing. I've also worked with students who are deaf blind. For our families who are deaf, they don't want to be referred to as hearing impaired. That To them, that's an offensive term. They like to be known as deaf. That is their culture. That is their language. So being called deaf for them, that's not offensive to them. That is usually how they'd like to be recognized. So we learn these things by having those conversations. And again, that may not happen on day one. We need to be mindful that families may not be comfortable with us initially. We might not have that level of trust and that bond established yet, but we'll get there if we come from that place of humility and authenticity and wanting to build that trust
0: you know, it goes back to engagement versus involvement, doesn't it? You're talking about working with our caregivers, working with our families versus us going, doing, or saying something to them. That's kind of what I kept kind of going through my head as you were having these conversations about saying, my name is, this is how you, I'm happy to have you referred to me in this way. That's that collaboration. That's the partnership. That's engagement, Right? Am I understanding this correct? Versus involvement, where it is, I'll just assume based on my own life experiences to refer to you as mom and dad. Am I kind of capturing that correctly? It's exactly that, Dawn. Because in the
1: in the former, when we're having that involvement piece, you're making that assumption, and it is truly the doing too. Because I'm calling you whatever I feel like calling you. Whereas in the second, when we're truly forging that engagement, forging that partnership, it's a relationship of equals. So Mm -hmm. if we're equals then, of course, I want to treat you with the same respect that I wish to be treated with. And if I'm going to be calling you by the name or, you know, identifying you in the way that you wish to be identified by, I would hope for that same respect and that same treatment. So that's where that partnership piece truly comes in, because it is forging that relationship of equals. And I think that's something that um, while we may think that we do that sometimes, I don't know that it's always come out in practice. I think we're emerging into that more and more now, which is truly exciting because that's where we need to be.
0: Oh, I love that relationship of equals. I want to hold on to that. I think we need to hold on to that relationship of equals. I think that's so critical. So on that note, I want to foster these relationships of equals. Um, You know, as a practitioner, what if I'm concerned? What if I want to forge these close relationships? But gosh, I'm afraid of doing something wrong or saying something where I don't mean to offend and I do. What advice might you offer to those of us in the field who have this, this kind of worry that we're thinking through?
1: Honestly, we are all human. And I don't think it is a realistic expectation that we are always going to get everything right 100% of the time. Um, So I do think that one of the things that we need to be prepared for is if we do make a misstep, or we make a mistake, that we come from a place again of humility and being genuine in apologizing. And then the way we try to rectify the situation though, is by showing that we are committed to getting it right moving forward. Um, And that we do care enough that we really do want to be mindful moving forward, that we are going to do things differently because now we know better and we are not coming from a place of, you know, perhaps not knowing or a place of, you know, ignorance, if that's what we want to call it formerly. Um, But moving forward, we're going to do things differently. I would also say that you know, for practitioners who are, or educators who are working with um, families and working with students whose lived experiences and whose backgrounds do not match their own, you know please reach out to the cultural brokers in your communities they are there and they are willing to work with you there are so many wonderful organizations in our state of Pennsylvania and in each of our regions that do wonderful work each and every day in our various communities throughout the state and i often say in my 20 plus years you know in the field of education in various capacities i have never once reached out to a community organization and had them turn me down. If I've had a question or needed information on something or been looking for a resource for one of my families, you know, I might have people say, you know, oh, you know, we're so busy right now. I, I may not have time to meet with you, but if you could send me some questions, I'll definitely try to get you the information, or I can get you hooked up with somebody who has it, or who can talk with you, or who can connect you with some other resources. But, um, you know, if I could give one piece of advice or one, um Top tip to my fellow educators: It's please use the resources that are out there. Um, we have so many wonderful community organizations, and they are willing to help. Um, so if you're not sure or you don't have that same background, look for the organizations that
0: do, and they will help. Oh, you know, it's using those resources to be genuine about developing the relationship of equals. And I think that's really um, really what we need to hold on to again. and thinking through that engagement with this with and that collaboration versus evolve- involvement, which is kind of happening too our families and our caregivers. So, you know, Tara, this has been so informative. I thank you so much. These are conversations we're having, and we're not kind of coming together to ensure we're all talking about the same thing. And so I really do appreciate your time and your energy and your expertise around family engagement and how beneficial it is for our students, for our schools, and for the larger community. So thank you for joining Pod today. We're so glad you were able to do it with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Don. These are really important conversations and we are all just learning and trying to do better each day. It was a pleasure being with you.
0: Thank you. So, so glad that we had you on Patent Pod. We look forward to future opportunities as well. Thank you to all of you in the field. You are truly an inspiration to us all. A special thank you to John Radsdale for producing this podcast. We'll see you next time on Patent Pod.